The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, August 7th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So I'm here in Provincetown. That's in uh, Massachusetts, tip of Massachusetts. If you know anything about the demographics of Provincetown, you will know that the audience I watched the debate with last night probably not watching it unironically. Still, there were moments, moments of excitement, a frisson of glee whenever Donald Trump was on the scene. It was like 1981 or 1982, Saturday Night Live was in their doldrums, and you'd have to sit through Piscopo, you'd have to sit through Charles Rocket, you have to sit through Rand Paul, you have to sit through Ted Cruz, and there would be Eddie Murphy slash Donald Trump. He'd deliver, he'd say something outrageous. Actually, it's not even a great analogy because Donald Trump is not a comic genius intentionally, but he's really good at what he does. He's not perfect. There was one point in the debate where Chris Wallace asked him about his four bankrupt businesses, and he answered well, but he really could have eviscerated the question by saying, this is what the media doesn't understand about business, or all they do is focus on the failures. And he did point out he had hundreds of successes, but he could have even said, And it doesn't really even matter if it's true we found out with Trump, but he could have even said, those lenders, they lent to me again, or I do business with the exact same people because they know that I'm so successful, I've made them millions and billions over the years. I thought that Chris Christie had a good debate because he got into it with Rand Paul, he got into it with Mike Huckabee on somewhat technical issues, but he really showed a real difference. I don't know, was it a good debate? Or was it to me an actual debate rather than a series of talking points? See, I think all these debaters were good. They were very good. Even the questioners were good for what the forum was. I think they were great. But you have candidates like Mike Huckabee who had a pre-planned line. Ronald Reagan said, trust but verify. President Obama is trust but vilify. But that part where it's like, all right, guys, you all hate the Iran deal. Tell me why. And they each get their minute of jabs in. That does nothing for me. I think Kasich elevated his stature. Christie certainly did. Ben Carson, to me, was just a little bit out to lunch. But you know... Ben Carson watches a lot of Fox. Most of what he said, like talking about Sal Alinsky, just Fox, regular Fox talking points. If you have watched the debate, I wanted to raise three moments, talk about three moments that you may have missed. And they were just weird, quirky, interesting moments. The first, Donald Trump, he was getting into it with Jeb, and he said this. We don't have time for tone. And I love we don't have time for tone. I mean, everything this guy says can be a hashtag. But, you know, if the expression on fleek is 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 a thing, then no time for tone has got to be the biggest social media expression. Since online, everyone's always berating everyone else about tone. A quick no time for tone. Love it. Second thing, it was Huckabee again talking about the real big problem with America. These people. Prostitutes. Pimps. Pimps. Didn't say hoes. But as we know, hoes got to eat too. I think he's saying if we get the pimps and the hoes to pay into the social security pot, we'll all be better off. If you work hard, if you wear a fedora, if you pimp by the rules, you should have a decent life. The last thing was really just a throwaway. And if you only have an allotted, whatever it was, seven and a half minutes, why spend even half a second enlisting your achievements as a pro-lifer with this thing as Bush did? We were the first state to do a choose life license plate. A choose life license plate. I'm going to elect you. I mean, often you'll hear governors talking about, you know, I balance the budget. That's because they have to, by law. It doesn't apply to the federal government. But if anything didn't ever apply to the federal government, it's the choose life license plate, okay? 
just as Chris Christie can say, yeah, toll lanes don't won't really it won't come up as president, neither will the choose life license plate. On the show today, we go back to 1997. We talk about the number one hits. You know, there are some jaunty pop songs like the Mbop, but also it was a year of mournful dirges for many weeks in a row. So quickly now, back to the 18-year-old time machine. Actually, time machine's new. It's just going to take you back 18 years. 1997, number one hits. Nineteen ninety-seven was a year of well on the pop charts, just a couple songs getting to be number one. And every once in a while, we take a year, we talk about what songs went to number one. Nineteen ninety-seven was an interesting year. You had just monoliths, mega hits dominating the chart. You even had one song showing up in three different forms. Here to f- explain it all to us, if he can, is Chris Malamphy, who writes the "Why Is This Song Number One" column for Slate. And we take a year and we talk about the number one songs of that year. Hey, Chris, how you doing, Mike? I'm good. I'm good. So the the year starts off like any other year with a number one song that people like, Unbreak My Heart by Tony Braxton. Unbreak My Heart is one of the many number one songs written by the veteran songwriter Diane Warren. Tony Braxton really sells this one. Unbreak oh, yeah. My Heart has a has a beautiful vocal. Unbreak My Heart itself is a very memorable phrase. You know, it, it's got that kind of crystal adult contemporary slash R&B vibe. Mm-hmm. And it was a hit for a reason. I think we all know why that was a hit. Don't leave me out in the rain. Bring back the nights when I held you beside me. Hey, guess what comes next? It's the Spice Girls with Wannabe. Yeah. Girl groups back. Well, yeah. I mean, girl power is back. And and I would argue that in in 97, in a way, pop was back, right? Because let's let's think about the 1990s in, in two pieces. The first half of the 90s was a pretty dour half of a decade. It was what I would call the era, and I'm being very glib when I say this, of grunge and gangsta, right? Mm -hmm. It's the era of Nirvana and all the bands that came after, and it's the era of Dr. Dre, the era of, you know, Snoop Dogg, Tupac, Biggie, and we'll talk about Biggie in a minute. 1997 is the year where you start to see things turn a little more candy-colored, and I would say there are two number one hits in 1997 that indicate that we're about to have this major shift back toward pure pop. One, as you just mentioned, is the Spice Girls with Wannabe. By the way, Mike, can you name all five Spice Girls? It's kind of like naming the seven dwarfs. You always forget one. Bashful? No, there was no Bashful. No there Bashville. was a baby. There was a ginger. There was a posh. There was a sporty. And there was a, oh, what did they call? Was there an angry spice? You're, you're getting close. It, it, was yeah. there a scary, scary spice? There you go. Very good. Yes. Well done. Well yes. done. <laughs> I got my Spice Girls. There was a thyme. There was a parsley. The Spice Girls asked us, tell me what you want, what you really, really want. Apparently, what the record-buying public wanted was Puff Daddy because he shows up right after the Spice Girls with Can't Nobody Hold Me Down. That's Puff Daddy featuring Mace. 
Cause we're close to the edge We're trying not to lose our heads <laughs> Broken glass everywhere If it ain't about no money, Puff, I just don't care I'm that good. Basically, from a period of mid-March through about September, Puff Daddy was involved in every number one hit but one. Uh, the only one he wasn't involved in was uh, Mbop by uh, Hanson. If Mbop <laughs> hadn't gone to number one in May, songs involving Puff Daddy would have been number one for about a solid six months. That, that was the kind of year that Puff Daddy had, between hits that he recorded himself and hits that he produced for others, including The Notorious B.I.G. and Mariah Carey. The other one, which I'm sure all of us remember from that year, is Mo Money, Mo Problems, which uh, rides heavily upon the song by Diana Ross, I'm Coming Out. out. A few people use that one. Yes. Yes. uh, Yeah. That's a big one. That's a big one. The same old pimp, mace, you know ain't nothing changed but my limp. Can't stop till I see my name on a blimp. Guarantee me yourself, pull it up a lot. You don't believe I'm on the world. Then, B.I.G., you know, he dies. Yeah. And they have a tribute song. And it's not really a tribute song. It's just... A police song and Puff saying nice things every once in a while. Let's pause for a moment. Let's put a pin in this and let's talk about Puff Daddy, Sean Combs, and sampling. Okay. In 1997, Puff Daddy was sort of at the center of a controversy over sampling and its overuse and the creativity or lack thereof. I would agree with you that probably the least creative use of a sample in any of Puffy's number one hits is I'll Be Missing You. Yeah. My problem with it, honestly, is it's not so much that I mind that he's using uh, Every Breath You Take, a number one hit by The Police, written by Sting in 1983. It's that he, he kind of... I don't know, cut everything that was dark out of Every Breath You Take. Part of what I like about Every Breath You Take is that it's it's not just a, a love song. In fact, Sting has often decried people who perceive it as a love song. It, it's a song about paranoia and surveillance. I'll be missing you is, I mean, understandably, because it's a tribute to his fallen hero, uh, the notorious B.I.G., his comrade, is a very sweet, sticky kind of song. And uh, it kind of removes everything that was spooky about uh, Every Breath You Take and, and goes for the, the straight and sweet. Seems like yesterday we used to rock the show. I laced the track, you locked the flow. So far from hanging on the block the dough. Notorious, they got to know that life ain't always what it seemed to be. Words can't express what you mean to me. Even though you're gone, we still a team. Through your family, I'll fulfill your dreams. In the future, can't wait to see if you open up the gates for me. I think it's just too much of the original song. To me, that is 80% every breath you take and 20% Puffy saying some stuff around it yeah. as opposed to taking a sample and building upon that. Right. That's there, my there's, problem. There's creative sampling and then there's quick and dirty sampling. Yeah. Uh, let me be fair on two levels with I'll Be Missing You. Number one, it was a tribute record thrown together mere weeks after Biggie died in mm-hmm. March of 1997. It was already in stores by May of 1997. So I imagine this was not one of those moments where Sean Combs tried to think hard about, gee, how 
how can I, you know, mix the Every Breath yeah. You Take sample with lots of other stuff? And number two, later that same year at the uh, MTV Video Music Awards in September, none other than Sting himself actually appeared to sing the song with Puff Daddy and uh, an entire choir. So as if putting his uh, seal of approval on the whole enterprise, I'm sure it didn't hurt his uh, royalties any. Sting, uh, to some extent, endorsed uh, the number one hit, I'll Be Missing You. So Hanson goes to number one with Mbop. This is a perfect pop song. I think I, it's Mbop. I, I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> I, I am f- solidly pro Mbop. Who's um, not? Why? Uh, oh, Hanson. lots of Americans are not pro Mbop. Mbop frequently appears on polls of worst singles of all time. I don't know if I've ever met anybody who either doesn't love Mbop or hate Mbop. Uh, frankly, it, it divides my own household. My fiance can't stand Mbop. I adore Mbop. And then you have the la- essentially the last quarter of 1997, yep. one song's at number one. And that one song is a double-sided hit by Elton John. And what we really need to talk about, obviously, is the A-side, which is Candle in the Wind 97. That is its full title, Candle in the Wind 1997. And the flip side is Something About the Way You Look Tonight. That song became something of a touchstone for people mourning the death of the People's Princess, as they called her. What wound up happening was that Elton went into the studio with actually George Martin, the Beatles producer, and produced a studio version of Candle in the Wind, the version that he wrote with new lyrics. Uh, the You will recall that the original Candle in the Wind was written in honor of Marilyn Monroe, and it begins with the line, uh, Goodbye, Norma Jean. Goodbye, Norma Jean, though I never knew at all you had the rest to hold yourself with those around your core. Interesting tidbit, uh, Princess Diana was 36 when she died, the same age that uh, Marilyn Monroe was when she died. So the two tribute subjects of Elton John's song were both 36 when they passed away. Goodbye, England's rose. May you ever grow in our hearts. You were the grace that placed yourself where lives were torn apart. You called out to our country. You whispered to those in pain Now you belong to heaven And the stars spell out your name It sold something like 33 million copies worldwide. It is believed to be second biggest seller of all time because uh, the only record that's possibly sold more copies is White Christmas by Bing Crosby. It is estimated that uh, Bing Crosby's song has sold about 50 million copies, but at 33 million copies, Candle in the Wind 1997 is way up there among the biggest selling singles of all time. Along England's greenest hills Your candles burned out long before 
So if you combine Candle in the Wind with I'll Be Missing You, we have about 22, 23 weeks, half a year of dirges, literally right. dirges as the number one song. Mbop's a fun song, the Spice Girls, but you know, the other songs were Mo Money, Mo Problems and Unbreak My Heart. Is there something, was there something in the air or in the wind in 1997 that put us in, that afflicted us with such melancholia? I mean, I like to divide the 1990s into two halves. I see the first half of the 1990s as kind of a grunge and gangsta half, and I like to see the second half of the 1990s as a pure pop and I guess you could call it puff daddy half, you know, a more shiny hip hop half. And 1997, it's a little late in the decade for it to be appearing, but 97 is the pivot year, really. You know, you start to see after uh, Hanson and the Spice Girls, a much poppier uh, sound at Top 40 Radio. You can argue that those groups led to the Backstreet Boys. They led to Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, all the stuff that became big in 98 and 99 kind of started in 97. And it also brightened up the sound of hip hop as well. Hip hop becomes a little shinier, a little more, as they called it back then, ghetto fabulous. Uh, and and that's, uh, that's the sound of the second half of the 90s. Chris Malamphy writes the Why Is This Song number one column for Slate. We pick a year. We talk about the number one hits. In the case of 1997, not that many songs because of Candle in the Wind and the Biggie tribute. But there you go. Thanks a lot, Chris. You got it, Mike. And now the spiel. It's an Antan twig, our name for recurring bad breath, odor, not due to illness. Oh, wait, that's not an Antan twig. That's simple chronic halitosis, our name for recurring breath odor, not due to illness. The Antan twig is the old English word for a three-week period. Did you know that? I discovered it. I uncovered it. I invented it. But let's go with it, okay? Because there are no old English people around saying that I am wrong. What of me, good sir? Old Alistair here is not yet in his grave. Oh, shut up, Alistair. Why is Alistair always barging into the Antantwig? Anyway, let's begin with not a correction per se, but a good, if somewhat pointed, rebuttal to my claims about lions. At the center of the claim was the fact that we were getting all upset over the fact that the African lion population has dropped from 250,000 in the 70s to 30,000 today. I did point out that a lot of these lions, sad, sad, but a lot of these lions were trying to kill you, right? Not you, but some guy. A lot of the times it was a guy versus lion. Brendan Duffy did not like that. He wrote to me and said, I'd like to take issue with two points implicit in your rant. Not a rant, but that's okay. First, the claim that the reduction in the population of African lions, whose numbers have fallen from a quarter of a million in 1970 to 30,000 today, is sad because lions are cool and Simba. This dismisses quite casually the role of the apex predator in a pretty important ecosystem. All right, let me say this. You know how Jewish people can make a Jewish joke or a Jewish reference, but Mike Huckabee can't? Or Chris Rock can use the N-word, but... Mike Huckabee can't. Same thing. Since the apex predator is man, and since I'm a man, you see what I'm saying here? Anyway, more of the letter. So he goes on. Some some numbers. Let's say 4,000 people were killed by lions between 75 and 2015. I, I bought that number. And let's say the number you gave a quarter of a million lions is the number of lions killed during that period. It gives us 63 lion deaths per human death. So he says that rebuts my case that a lot of the time it was us or them. 
I don't know. Just because man is better at killing lions than lions are killing man, it doesn't mean it wasn't us or them. Goes on to quote the Union of Conservation of Nature, listing the causes of death. The most important are indiscriminate killing in defense of life and livestock, habitat loss, prey-based depletion, bushmeat trade, and National Geographic says 60% of the lion deaths are caused by poorly regulated sport hunting. All right. He makes a decent enough point. Anyway, my original claim was only that a good percentage of the lions were killed in an us or them situation. I don't know that there is an actual definition of good percentage. But I want to point out why I read parts of the letter, because I think it showed effort, because it was a fact-based argument, because no one said anyone was going to be marching to the ovens. So it was good feedback. It was good discourse. And I say thanks. On another note, I recently spieled about my life mantra, don't be horrible, as in, wow, all these issues about how to deal with trans people, I hadn't really considered it, and it seems new and confusing. What shall I be? My advice, don't be horrible. It's a pretty good idea, right? Going on, if you're going on and on and on about the hypothetical horrors of a 12-year-old girl being confronted with a transgendered or transitioning person in a bathroom, I've been to the ladies' room. They're all in stalls. I was on a fact-finding mission, nothing more. What are you talking about? Just don't be horrible. Don't be horrible to your fellow person. Now, Patrick Roddy tweeted at me, I like your don't be horrible. I usually go with be decent, even less words. Aha, but be decent is different from don't be horrible. Be decent, others have suggested be kind, is much, much more high-minded than simply not being horrible. All right, picture a continuum. This is the continuum of human decency. On one end are the good things, like altruism and kindness and mercy. On the other end, hatred, aggression, horribleness. I am not advocating that you dwell in the top quintile on that one end with the good stuff. I'm just saying look at the other end with the bad stuff and merely avoid that. Right? I'm not telling you to be a better person than the average person, which, by the way, isn't saying much because depending on your time and circumstance, like let's say during the Rwandan Civil War, the average person pretty much sucked. But I'm advocating that you simply avoid the lowest quintile of action and thought. Don't dwell in the realm of the horrible. I do tell my kids to be kind. I try to be kind. But when it comes to advising others or even suggesting, say, government policy, something that would compel others, I keep it humble. I merely say don't be horrible. That's all. Just don't be horrible. Well, we got some not horrible names for our frogs. There are four white frogs, one green frog. We told you to name them like a band. Here are some good suggestions. The Mormon Froggernackle Choir, <laughs> The Frog Moans, Greeny Whitey, Paley See-Through, and Dee Dee. That was a good one by Ian DeGiff. Jack Crick proposed Rosie and the Ribbiters. Now, problem with that is they're all male frogs. But why should that be a problem? I mean, of all the issues in naming frogs after Rosie and the Ribbiters, why does gender pop to the fore? Why not the fact that none of these frogs worked the factory line while their husbands were off at war? Like, that seems a bigger issue, but somehow I want to disqualify it based on gender. Now, we got two interesting ones. I'll start with Russell Cobb's The Frog Prince and the New Power Generation. And then I think improving on this was Catherine Fink, who wrote Frog Prince and the new pallid generation, 
right? Since the white ones are the backups. But isn't it weird that they go that they would go with the power generation as the backup band, not the revolution? Isn't Prince's backup band best known as the revolution? But I think from now and going forward, the name of our frogs shall be Elvis Frogstello and the Croak Tractions, Jonathan Hickey. You win those frog names. And now the Lopstar, which is our name for the best Twitterer, Facebooker, or communicator of the Antan Twig. Our Lopstar is Mitra Farmand, who is a cartoonist. Go to her website, Fuffernutter, well, it's MitraFarmand.com, to find out all about what she's cartooning about. I read her bio. It said this, I don't like the zoo or buttons. If you see someone wearing a button-down shirt at the zoo, that is not me. I've had one cartoon published in The New Yorker. I hope someday to double that. Mitra twittered at me, or twatted, if you will. Okay, by your expression, I'm seeing that you won't. So she tweeted at me something that I said that she said inspired a cartoon. She wrote, this cartoon idea came to me while I was listening to your podcast. You're to blame for this. So it's a cartoon of a brown dog talking to a black dog. And the brown dog is enthusiastically saying, have you met that new guy? What an asshole. Now, this is funny because what an asshole to a dog means something different than it does to us. To us, it means the new guy is a miscreant, a self-aggrandizer, or a schmuck. To a dog, it means his rear orifice provides olfactory pleasures. Or, this would be the more Occam's razor theory, it's just funny that dogs talk. Anyway, I assume the thing that inspired Mitra was my full-throated defense of the word asshole for its specificity, for its descriptiveness, his alternative theory. She just listens and frequently thinks to herself, what an asshole? That, that could be true. Anyway, Mitra's other cartoons available for perusal or purchase at mitrafarmand.com. There's a funny one with matches. And now Mitra Farmand has as many cartoons in The New Yorker as she has lobsters of the Antan Twig. And that's it for today's show. And we say goodbye, Andrea Salenzi, just producer. May you ever grow in our hearts. You were the grace that placed itself where lives were torn apart. You know, by the way, Andrew's not really leaving, but I never really noticed this. But perhaps it was noticed by Joel Meyer, managing producer, who also called out to our country. And you whispered to those in pain, now he belongs to heaven and the stars spell out your name. Also, Joel, not dead. But do you see what I'm going with here? This song doesn't rhyme. Can I get a what what executive producer Andy Bowers, better known for never fading with the sunset when the rain set in and your footsteps will always fall here along England's greenest hills, your candles burned out long before your legend ever will. You know what? Let's just end there. Hills and will. It is the closest we get to a rhyme in the biggest selling song of all time other than White Christmas. Anyway, Elton and I say thanks for listening.